0: Chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And so, uh, for the last month or so, my family has been in Australia uh, with a team of folks from here and from a local university. It was an amazing time working with churches and church leaders and church planters. And uh, we got back uh, about a week ago, and it's been this kind of amazing and yet uh, trying adjustment back home. If you've ever traveled internationally, you know how this goes. The last section of our trip while we were gone, Uh, There was a 17-hour time difference between where we were and where you guys are here in Nashville. And so Sydney and I come back last week with our three kids. We're trying to adjust from the 17-hour time difference, trying to sleep at the right times and eat at the right times and just kind of get our our lives back on schedule. And so earlier this week, I kind of thought that I had overcome the jet lag. You know, everybody's, how are you doing? I'm like, I feel great feel fine. So Tuesday afternoon, I'm going to pick up dinner uh, for our family. And uh, I grab my my three boys, my two oldest, kind of run out the door in front of me. We leave our apartment. We're walking through the parking lot. And all of a sudden, I start looking for my youngest son, Judah, who's 20 months old, and I can't find him anywhere. And some of you that are parents, you know what it's like to lose a kid. You kind of have all sorts of things running through your head. Like, one, you're sad because your child is now gone. Uh, If you're a man, you're scared because your wife is going to murder you. And uh, I'm like looking for Judah all over the parking lot and I'm like calling his name. And normally he's pretty quick to come, but he will not come. And so I start running around the parking lot looking for Judah. And my middle son, Jack, who's four, starts chasing me. He's like, dad, dad, dad. I'm like, not now, buddy, I'm trying to find your brother. And he finally catches up with me and he grabs my, my shorts and he says, dad, you're holding them. And I kid you not, I look down and I'm holding Judah. It's like, you know, one of those moments where you lose your phone and you're talking on it, or you lose your keys and they're in your hand. True story. I cannot make this up, you know. And I'm like, I lost my kid while I was holding him. And I realized, okay, my brain, I didn't have much to work with in the first place, but it's, it's a little slow. It's kind of moving um, a speed behind. So today, if I say anything that is borderline heresy, can can you give me like a one-week grace window before you write your blog, before you leave the church? You know, we'll, we'll blame this week on jet lag, and then if if it doesn't get better next week, you can write your blog and leave the church and all that. But just realize, man, my mind has not been as sharp as I want it to be as we're trying to catch back up. But it, it, it's, it's been fun keeping up with what, what God's been doing in our church over the last month, even though it's been heartbreaking to see what God or, or what has been happening in the midst of our country. And, you know, if you've been with us as... Uh, a church family for four or five months now we have been talking about everyday discipleship in other words we've been asking the question what happens when church people move beyond church what happens when we realize we need more than songs and sermons and good friends and good house churches and good community groups what happens when people say we are serious about following jesus so for the last you know several months together we, we took seven or eight weeks and we looked at how jesus related to the holy spirit and to his heavenly father and we said what if we modeled our upward lives the way that Jesus did. And so all of a sudden, as disciples of Jesus, What if we related with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit the way that he did? And so we spent about seven weeks talking about discipleship from that angle. And then we spent about seven weeks talking about discipleship in regards to community. How did Jesus engage with his spiritual community and what does that mean for us? And then for the last six or seven weeks, we've been talking about how Jesus released his disciples to live on mission in the world because discipleship that does not lead to mission is not discipleship. And once you hear that very clearly, discipleship that does not lead to mission is not discipleship. Discipleship changes more than just the way we think and the way we feel. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we serve. It changes the way we talk. It changes the way we engage. And so for the last six or seven weeks, we've been talking about how does our following Jesus change the way we engage a world? And I think this is a really pertinent time to be having this conversation. In fact, we're gonna be wrapping up this series over the next three weeks, and we're gonna be doing so by talking about how being disciples of Jesus forces us to joyfully engage the challenges that are facing our culture. And so this morning, that's what I want us to wrestle with. My family left the States two days after the tragic shooting in Orlando. And then it felt like every two days after that, something crazy happened. Mass shootings, racial tension that resurfaced in ways that so many of us have been oblivious to. A presidential season that has become theater at best. You know, someone asked me, what are you going to do if Trump wins? I said, I'll move to Mexico, because that'd be kind of funny, like, you know, uh, to do that with the wall and everything. Maybe you get the joke. And, and they, said, they said, you know, what about Hillary? I said, I'll go to Canada. And I said, we're in one of those seasons, right? Or in some ways, it feels more like theater than leadership on both sides of the coin. And if that offended, offended you, just stick around. I'll offend all of you by the end of the month, I promise. <laughs> but I go, how does Jesus call us to engage? Or think about what happened in Nice? Or what happened in Turkey? What happened in Istanbul or, Istanbul, or Bangladesh? Or what happened in Kabul this weekend? that didn't make the news because we don't tend to care as much when brown people kill brown people. Let's just call it what it is. The world cares when brown people kill people that look like me. And I know that's uncomfortable to say, but it's true. And I go, so how do we as followers of Jesus stand in the gap when the culture around us is becoming absolute chaos? Our family came back to the States last week, and we had a layover in Los Angeles. And the the morning we touched down, we had a few hours there in the airport, and I uh, pulled up my phone and just was trying to catch up on the news. You know, I hadn't read much while I was gone. And one of the the leading articles on USA Today, the day we landed, was by a woman named Natalie Bellasio. And this is the title of the article, and I'll just read this to you. The name of the article was, How to Take Care of Yourself in This Messed-Up World. And I thought I like that article. That like resonates with something that's deep inside of me. And this is the way the article started. It said 49 dead in the massacre in the massacre in a gay nightclub in Orlando. 41 killed in the Istanbul airport. 20 hostages killed during the 10-hour siege in a bakery in Bangladesh. Alton Sterling, Philandio Castile. Eight police officers in Baton Rouge and in Dallas. 84 people killed, 200 wounded in Nice. 200 dead through the coup in Turkey. And this is the part of the article that really began to hit me. She said, how can we go on? How can we mourn this tragedy when we haven't recovered from the last one? We are heartbroken, afraid, confused, and guilty. We feel guilty because we don't know what to do. We feel guilty because we're scared of acting. We feel guilty because we don't feel guilty anymore. Your numbness, your fear, your confusion, and this is the part of the article that just really hit me. She said, it's normal. And I'm reading this in the airport, just going, okay, God, how do the people of Jesus respond? And you get to the end of the article, and she gives some suggestions for coping with the chaos. And uh, here, here was her response. She said, here's some things you can do in the midst of this messed up world. She said, reach out to your friends and build a support system. Number two, do something nice for somebody. Number three, go to a quiet place. Number four, take a long, hot bath. Number five, get a good night's sleep. Number six, eat well and take care of your body. And number seven, don't drink as much alcohol anymore. And I listened to that, and I, I, I resonated with her longing. But I was, I, I was at a point of confusion on the response, right? Right? And I don't fault her for that because we're all there. She's looking around going, The world is crazy. What do we do about it? And she goes, I don't know what we do about it. Maybe I take a bath, do something nice, and quit drinking. And I'm like, That would probably be helpful. But that's not the answer. And for thousands of years, followers of Jesus, just like you, just like me, have found themselves at the crossroads of human history where the wheels seemed to come off the bus, where push came to shove where chaos trumped our comfort. And all of a sudden we have to decide who are we going to be, what are we going to do. And for thousands of years, Christians have typically responded in one of two ways. There have been moments where the church has withdrawn from the chaos. We get together, we we build our proverbial forts, we dig our moats, we lift the drawbridge, and we make sure none of the chaos out there touches us in here. There have been other seasons in Christian history where the church has gone to the other extreme. In fact, this is a lot of what you see happening right now. The church just conforms. We'll think the way the culture thinks. We'll affirm what the culture affirms. We'll live the way the culture lives. When the culture is scared, we'll be scared. When the culture is angry, we'll be angry. When the culture is divided, we'll be divided. And one of the things that the church has learned over and over and over in the midst of human history is that trying to bring about the kingdom of God with the thinking and the actions of the world never works. But I believe Jesus offers a different way. And it's what we've been talking about for four and a half months together. That as followers of Jesus in the midst of chaos, we're not called to withdraw and we're not called to conform. We're called to engage, to to transform, to make a difference. And I believe that the church of Jesus Christ was born for such a time as this. That it is not an accident that you were born when you were born. That God is not sitting up in heaven going, man, if only you guys would have been born in the 20s, you could have really taken me seriously. Were you born on accident? No, maybe your parents didn't plan you. God did. In fact, Acts 17 verse 26 says that God knows when every person, when they would be born, in human history, where they would live, so that all people could reach out and know that God was never far from them. I go, do we believe that in seasons like this? That you have been hardwired by God, by the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the family that we call the church to stand in the midst of chaos, to not cower and withdraw, to not conform, but to engage and say, God, here I am, would you use me in the midst of the mess? I believe if a follower of Jesus would have written this article in USA Today, it would not have been how to take care of ourselves in the messed up world. It would be how to bless those around us in a messed up world. Because the questions and the fears that every one of us feel is what every one of your neighbors, your coworkers, and your students are feeling just as well. And for the people of God to be the people of God, I would argue that this is about to be your finest hour. And you have a choice. You have a choice of what kind of Christian do you want to be. And I believe that play it safe, Conform to the culture, hide from the chaos, Christianity is on life support. But wherever there are men and women willing to raise up in the power and the grace of King Jesus, things change. And I love this text that we're going to look at for a few minutes this morning. The Apostle Paul, if you don't know anything about him, he was a man whose life had been wrecked by the grace and the love of Jesus. And he believed the greatest way to change the world was to see a group of human beings filled with the power and the grace and love of Jesus and to turn them loose in a city. And he called this the church. So he was a serial church planter. He would go and start churches. And he started this church in a city named Corinth. The letter that we're reading this morning was written to the church in Corinth. And if you don't know anything about the city of Corinth, it was a city marked by chaos, political unrest, spiritual confusion, moral decay. It was a jacked up city. But it doesn't take you long to read the letter that was written to the Corinthians to realize it wasn't just the culture that was jacked up. It was the church within that culture that was jacked up as well. They were morally bankrupt. They were spiritually confused. Uh, They were relationally broken and heartbroken and heartsick. They didn't know what to do. And Paul is going to write to them in the midst of the chaos and he's going to remind them what it means to be the people of God. And I believe the words he spoke to them are the words that Jesus is speaking to us this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 14. That's what the Word of God says. It says, for it is Christ, what? What's that word? It is Christ. Say that again. For it is Christ. For it is Christ. Let's pretend you're all here. For it is Christ. It is Christ's love that compels us. Because we're convinced that one died, and therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Jesus this way, we don't do so any longer. Therefore, if any one of you is in Jesus, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Jesus's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as God's coworkers, we urge you, do not receive God's grace in vain for God has said, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of my salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of God out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. And Paul is gonna look at this church, this group of disciples, and I love the place that he is gonna begin. He says, the people of God, because we care about justice, the people of God, because we care about the chaos of the world, the people of God are never just spectators. We never just sit on the sidelines and watch the world rot away. And the people of God are not Monday morning quarterbacks. We are the roll up your sleeves, the get your hands dirty, the stand in the gap, take action, not spectators, but participants. But Paul says, I want you to notice what it is that propels followers of Jesus to action because there are a lot of people that take action in the world. But what motivates us towards action is an entirely different force. That's what he says. Look back at verse 14. He says, For it is Jesus' love that compels us or propels us or moves us from the sidelines onto the field. He says, The church, when we see the world around us falling apart, we're not motivated by anger or fear or hatred or the desire to hold on to power. It's not the pursuit of comfort. It's not protecting our nationality, that's not the thing that moves the people of God to action. What moves the people of God to action? It's love, it's the love of God. The love that God's shown towards us in Jesus that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the scriptures way of saying, when you were contributors to the chaos, God came for you and now you go out with that same sense of love. That when the scriptures speak of love, they're not talking about the, the fleeting emotion of teenage romance or the subject of some romantic comedy. When the scriptures are talking about love, it's talking about the self effacing, self dying, self sacrificing, incomparable, inescapable, incomparable love of Jesus Christ towards the earth. For God so loved the world. Was it for God so loved the saved? For God so loved the religious, for God so loved the rich, for God so loved the white. No, it's for God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son. And Paul says when your heart collides with that reality of love, not just a concept, but the person of Jesus, he says when you encounter that love, that love will not allow you to stay put in your seats. That, that love is like a rocket launcher that pushes the people of God from the comfort of our churches into the chaos of our cultures. And that things change when the people of God come face to face with the inexhaustible love of Jesus. He says, what are we propelled by? He says, we're propelled by love. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, you're propelled by love. He says, you've also been positioned as ambassadors. He says, you've been propelled to action because of God's love. He says, but you have been positioned as an ambassador or something to do. Jump down to verse 20. I want you to see this. He says, because we're therefore Christ ambassadors. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, you should underline that phrase. As though God himself were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Jesus' behalf, be reconciled to God. I don't know if you've ever really thought in depth about what an ambassador is, but an ambassador is so much more than a cheerleader. An ambassador is someone who has been given the responsibility to both represent and to establish something on behalf of their king. And so our ambassador to the Middle East has been charged to, as they go into the Middle Eastern countries, to to be a fair representation of the leader that has sent them. And Paul is reminding us of this as followers of Jesus. He's saying, you have been sent as an ambassador. You have a responsibility to bear. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom, a mechanic, an accountant, a student, unemployed. It doesn't matter if you're a school teacher or a cancer researcher. It doesn't matter what your story is. Your first calling is to be a representative of King Jesus in the midst of the foreign land we find ourselves in. To be reminded that this place is not your home. And that your first allegiance is not to the country that we're in. But to the name and the glory and the honor of the praise of King Jesus who has commissioned us here. And will King Jesus use us to bless this country? Absolutely. But where does our allegiance lie? In the kingdom of God. And he says you've been sent as ambassadors As representatives of King Jesus, to say what he said, to love as he loved, to live as he lived, to do as he does. But ambassadors don't just represent foreign powers, ambassadors also establish safe havens and places in the context of foreign countries that represent the land they just came from. I don't know if you've ever traveled uh, overseas, but in in major foreign cities and foreign countries, there will be a U.S. embassy. And if you know anything about a U.S. embassy, they're established by ambassadors, and the embassies are there to represent the reign and the rule of the country that has sent them. And so earlier this year, Sydney and I were traveling with our kids, and there was a country that we were going to be passing through that had had a season of political unrest. And uh, one of our kind of mentors said, hey, the first thing you need to do when you get on the ground is figure out where the U.S. embassy is. Because no matter what's happening in the streets, if you can get to the embassy... In the embassy, they'll speak your language, they'll understand your worldview, they'll know your customs, they'll know your laws. In the embassy, things operate there as they do here. And Paul is saying something profound as he's challenging this church in the midst of a chaotic culture. He says, it's not just that you're propelled by love, he says, you've been sent as ambassadors to represent Jesus, but to establish heavenly embassies everywhere your feet touch, that as we gather on Sundays for worship, as we get together in our house churches, as, as we eat fish tacos at Baja Brito, praise God, He made that place. As you go to movies with your friends, as you're in community, everything we do as community of Jesus is to establish the reign and rule of heaven right here on earth. It changes the way we speak. It changes the way we talk. It changes the things we celebrate and the things we mourn. It changes the way that we love. It changes the way we steward our sexuality. It changes the way we handle our finances. It changes the way we handle truth and grace and love and truth. That in this community, the world that is marked by chaos is supposed to be getting a glimpse of heaven's aroma. That this group of people is supposed to be the preview before the movie that stirs the sentiments for the great coming attraction of King Jesus setting his feet down on this earth again and changing everything as we know it. That there's something about the church that's supposed to create this embassy. Out there may be chaos, but among us. There's not black and white, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. It's as Paul says in the book of Colossians there are people saved by Jesus. And the way we treat each other becomes this fragrant aroma for the world around us. Paul says, you are propelled by love, verse 14. You are positioned as ambassadors, verse 20. And he says, and as ambassadors, you have important work to do. Look back at verses 18 and 19. He says, all of this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he's given us this ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to him in Jesus. Listen to this phrase right here. Not counting people's sins against them. How amazing is that? He's committed to us this message of reconciliation. So we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal to us. So we implore you on Jesus's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul says, listen, we are propelled by love. We have been positioned as ambassadors to both proclaim and practice reconciliation. That is your vocation as a follower of Jesus. It is the proclamation and it is the practice of reconciliation between white and black, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, uh, United States citizens and immigrants, that we've been called to stand in the gap as agents of reconciliation, that we proclaim with our lips, no matter how things work out there, that does not fly in here. And here's what I've been so convicted of. As a church, we have proclaimed this message well. But we've not always practiced it well. And then we have a long way to go if we want our community to become a true taste test to the kingdom of heaven touching down on earth. But by God's grace, he will help us get there. And it's the decision that every one of us have to make as we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is not about checking the right box on the test at the end of your life. To be a follower of Jesus means you literally follow Jesus. And when chaos invaded the culture, where is Jesus always found? Neck deep in the chaos. That he doesn't withdraw and he doesn't conform, but he engages in church, I believe, Our finest hour has yet to come. But the the chaos we face is is very real. It's very real. Like, it's not a Christian thing to say, hey, be hopeful, everything's gonna be okay. That's That's not the way the scriptures paint it. The scriptures give us this ability to speak the truth and then to live in hope. To say, man, everything is falling apart in some ways. And Jesus Christ is the only answer. But we have hope because we know the way the story ends. I wonder sometimes when I listen to my brothers and sisters talk if all of us have read the way this book ends. Do you know the way the book ends? It ends well. It ends well. A lot of us are living as though we don't know the way the story unfolds. And so we know the way the story ends. Let's arrange our lives and our spirits and our dispositions and our work. As though we believe the way the story ends. Paul says, Don't hide, don't conform. He says, Be propelled by your love to stand as an ambassador of that love, both proclaiming and practicing the reconciliation that Jesus has so freely given you in himself. Because Christ Jesus himself took all the sins of the world of every racist, of every bigot, of every oppressor, of everyone who has done the oppressing, of everyone that has been oppressed. Jesus took all of that on his shoulders. So that in the greatest exchange in human history, he might take our guilt and he might give us his righteousness. So that the outworking of that new reality is that there are a people who could stand strong in the midst of a shaking culture and saying, man, we see things as they are, but we have hope because we know who is on the throne. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says, you have already been seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly realms. And so my question for us this morning, does your perspective reflect where you've already been seated? Does your perspective reflect where you've already been seated? When you look at the chaos of the world, are you drinking in the rhetoric of hate and division and fear that comes from every side? This is not a one side or the other. It comes from every side. When you look at the state of the world, are you drinking in the rhetoric of hopelessness? When you look at the state of the world, are you drinking in the rhetoric of division and power and force? Or have you subscribed to what it was that Jesus ran on when he came as king of the earth? He says, if you want to find your life, lose it. Follow me. Let's go. That Christians were made To stand in the intersection of conflict and chaos. Do you know what the idea of reconciliation carries with it by its very definition? Chaos. If you need reconciliation, it's because things are at odds. And God is saying, listen, here's the ministry that I've entrusted the church with. It's reconciling. Where will the people of God be? in the times we find ourselves in. I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm going with Jesus. Walking into all the mess. Any of you that want to come with me, let's do it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, as wickedness increases on the earth, some of you will lose your love for Christ. It's just been the thing I've been praying for you, that you wouldn't. But he says those that remain faithful step in the gap, that go where Christ has called us to be. Man, what a story he's trying to write through us. So those of you that are not followers of Christ, I wanna invite you this morning. I implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to Jesus today. Have your sins forgiven. Be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, I mean, what an exchange. Take everything you've ever done, offload it on God, and let him give you his righteousness. What an amazing gift in Jesus. Be reconciled, those of you that are not followers of Jesus. Here in a minute, we're gonna have a time of prayer and communion and worship. There'll be some of us up at the respond banner. If you wanna give your life to Jesus, come up. We'd love to pray over you, talk with you, help you take that step. Those of you that are followers of Jesus, I wanna give you just kind of one simple challenge this week. Turn down the noise. Turn down the media. Turn down some of the rhetoric that maybe you've been prone to drink in and just pick up the word of God challenge the 9 o'clock this morning to take a week and just fast from media I'm not saying you have to do it I promise you if you would fast from media and just begin devouring the word of God your view of what's happening in the world will change there's some of us that are going to spend Tuesday just fasting and repenting on behalf of our nation and just fasting and repenting that God would do what only God can do Maybe Tuesday's not a good day for you. Pick another day, it doesn't matter. We're just gonna get on our knees. We're just gonna call on the name of the Lord. We're we're not gonna eat food from sunup to sundown and say, God, we need you and we want you and we need to know how bad we need you. We need to know how bad we want you. Help us, Lord, help us. And so those of you that are Christians, I just wanna challenge you this week to really wrestle with is your perspective being shaped by the kingdom of God or by the kingdoms of men. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll wrestle with what it looks like to engage. Father, I love you. I love these people. Thank you for the hope that we have in you, King Jesus. God, I pray that you would make us people of honesty and hope, that we'd be propelled by love, positioned as ambassadors, both proclaimers and practitioners of all things that are of heaven. God, I pray that you would make this church look more like your kingdom. God, I pray that you would reconcile the brokenness of this world to yourself through the men and women that are part of this church family. God, you can do amazing things. You can do things that we don't even know how to ask you for. So whatever it is that you were praying for, Lord, you tell us that you are constantly Hebrews chapter 7, that you, are, that you live to intercede for the people, that God, whatever it is that you are praying right now, God, we say yes to that. We want that. Help us to pray that. Help us to live into that. Uh, make us courageous, faithful, and filled with love as we follow you into the season that we find ourselves in. It is in the name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks. Amen.